0: God, we you thank you for uh, this moment that we have together, uh, Lord, as your people. Lord, we uh, sit under the authority of your word. And God, we ask that your word would truly do the work today in our hearts. God, I pray that you'd be our teacher, that you would be our guide by your spirit, that you would illuminate our minds, open our hearts. Lord, help us to be expectant for what you have to say to us today. Through this passage, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, my wife uh, had the opportunity to go on a girl's trip. Uh, this was uh, five days long that I was alone with, uh, with all three of our kids. Uh, I have a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, 18-month-old, and, uh, and I'm happy to report that we survived. Everybody is still alive. Uh, no, we did not have Taco Bell every meal, and, uh, and we actually had a great time together, but it was exhausting. I mean, there, there's nothing like taking that passage in First Peter chapter 3, verse 7, where husbands are commanded to live with their wives in an understanding way, to then have your wife go away for five days and for you to understand what your wife does to make your home go. I'm so thankful for all that Lindsay does, in fact, One of the things that she did before she left is she really tried to set us up for success. Uh, She actually meal prepped three meals for us. Uh, She picked out all the the, the clothes for the kids and put them in bags and labeled them. This is Friday, this is Saturday. No, this is not jammies, you know, those kinds of things. She actually went as far as to, she wrote me this, uh, this instructional manual. This is like my game plan outlining each day, go here at this time, that day. That was like my Bible for five days, just trying to not mess this up. Because Lindsay, she, she wanted us not to live in confusion or disorder. She wanted us to live in peace for those five days. But in all honesty, there was a little bit of disorder. Uh, I tried to kind of fake it, you know, to make it, but, uh, but there were some things that happened where it was just like, all right, we're in survival mode. We're just going to kind of gut through this. Uh, and it happened, like the disorder happened in various levels. It happened in different forms. Like, like one kind of disorder was that right when she left, obviously the house was clean. It was immaculate. It was spotless. But when she left and Milo, my 18-month-old, when he, when he woke up and realized that mommy's not here, he was in disarray. He was like, man, who is this guy? And, and Milo's not weaned yet. And so he's like, daddy, like your chest is worthless. Like, we're just gonna play ball all the time? Like, what's going on here? Like, uh, so he was kind of flustered. And then trying to get Ellie onto the bus, you know, to, you know, to make it to school. I'm like brushing her hair as we're walking out the door. And then it was Lila's first day of pre-K. And so I have no idea how to do the drop-off, right? And there's like this, this code, this unwritten rules, I think, in, in mommy world about drop-off. And so I'm, I'm there, you know, ready to drop off Lila. And they call her name. They say, Lila Cardinal. And I'm like, that's not Lila, li- it's Lila Beals. And, and I hear laughter behind me. These moms behind me just kind of giggling. And I'm like, I don't know why they're giggling. They, no, it's Lila Cardinal. I said, no, no, this is Lila Beals. I know my, my, my daughter's last name. And, and the mom actually said behind me, each classroom has a different animal. And so I think they're the Cardinals. And, and, and so they just started erupting in, in laughter. Apparently I didn't know the, the, the code there, but um, so, so the, the kids were kind of flustered early on, but then they, they settled in, like they actually did really well. Um, but another kind of disorder came to the surface and that was the house. Uh, Each day, it got messier and messier and messier till day five, it looked like a tornado went through our house. Like there were diapers in every room, clothes were all over the place, kitchen utensils were somehow in the living room. Like it was just kind of in, in disarray. And yet the disorder that I felt happened in different forms. And I think that's important as we approach 1 Corinthians 14, to understand that you can experience disorder in different ways. There are different forms. And something that the Apostle Paul is, is trying to do in the church in Corinth here, specifically in this passage, he wants the things that were going on in their corporate worship gathering to be in order, to not be chaotic, to not be in disarray. He actually says that twice, verse 33 and verse 40. But as we travel through this passage, there's another kind of disorder that we are going to discover and be challenged by. So as we walk through this passage, since Paul wants to put things in order, we're going to see how Paul provides some concluding guidelines on worship in verses 26 through 33. We're going to find a principle for women in verses 34 and 35. And then we'll close with a strong warning in verses 36 through 40. So worship, women, and warning. Let's uh, start in verse 26. We see some concluding guidelines for worship. As Paul begins to, to land the plane on his argument that really began in chapter 12, uh, he's wanting to provide several more parameters for how to best gather for worship. And we notice Paul begin his conclusion in verse 26 with the phrase, what then, brothers? Brothers? Okay, this could be translated, really, what does all of this mean? Okay, so Paul is is trying to tie everything together, and he really provides four kind of summary guidelines for worship. And we're going to see a couple of these here. Starting in verse 26, the first one has to do with edification. Okay, he wants everything that they do when they gather together to have an aim for building one another up. Now, this has been a primary emphasis. We have seen this all throughout this chapter. He's now applying this principle and wants them to direct it of what's allowed in the order of service when they are worshiping together. And if you notice there in verse 26, he actually lists five specific elements in their worship that he wanted the Corinthians to practice. Now, one thing about this list, I don't think that this is a a prescriptive um, command for all churches in all places to practice just these five. I don't think that this is an exhaustive list. Paul's leaving out some really important elements to the order of worship that are commanded in other passages in the New Testament, like corporate prayer, like the public reading of scripture. So I don't think this is a prescriptive command, nor do I believe that Paul is saying that every member of a church must, um, must use one of these elements when they gather together. Rather, I think what Paul is saying here is that when the church is gathering here, someone has this gift, another person has this, pra- uh, this practice, someone does this, and so on and so forth, and he wants all that they do to be guided by the edification of one another. Now, we've hit that point many times before, so we'll kind of move on to the second guideline that we see for their worship in verses 27-27 and 28. And this has to do with speaking in tongues. Notice here, there are three more principles for how to best practice this spiritual gift. Number one, there must be limited quantity. He says two, at max three, uh, individuals who speak in tongues. Secondly, there must be a logical sequence, meaning one goes one at a time, not all at once. Again, he doesn't want the main emphasis of their worship to be speaking in tongues. And then thirdly, there must be interpretation. Again, stressing the need for understanding and therefore edification. And if these principles aren't being followed, uh, the person who's speaking in tongues should be silent. They, They should exercise this gift privately before the Lord. Now, clearly, Paul uh, is assuming that the one who's speaking in tongues has control over what they are doing. Okay, this might go against what we typically see maybe in movies of someone who's speaking in tongues, the eyes roll back in the head, and they're just out of control. They can't be stopped. Clearly, that they can be controlled one at a time and even to be silent if there's no interpreter. Thirdly, the third guideline has to do with prophecy in verses 29 through 33, Now, just a reminder, prophecy has not been the main spiritual gift that Paul has been correcting in 1 Corinthians. That's been speaking in tongues. Remember, they have, in an unhealthy way, elevated speaking in tongues as basically the top rung of the spiritual gifts ladder. And they're also practicing it uh, incorrectly. However, prophecy has contributed to the amount of disorder that this church was experiencing. So notice the way that he corrects them. First, he also exhorts them to limit the quantity. It says two, at max, three people to speak a word of prophecy. And then secondly, there must be a, a level of discernment in the, the word of prophecy. It says in verse 29 to, to let others weigh what is being said. And then thirdly, the one who is prophesying should give deference to others who want to prophesy. So in other words, the one who's giving that word, if someone else wants to give a word of prophecy, that person should be silent for the sake of others. Now, I think what needs further explanation here is what was the process like for carefully weighing prophecy? I think this is important, not just for this section, but for verses 34 and 35, Well, the first thing I want to point out is that when Paul says that the others need to weigh the prophecy in verse 29, he's referring not to just a select few of people, like the super-Christians, but really to the whole congregation, the whole church is weighing in on what is being said. In fact, this word, weigh, means to evaluate carefully, Okay, so the prophecy is not just to be accepted without, uh, without a level of discernment. It's not on the same level as the authority of God's word. This also implies that there's a level of discussion about what was being said that they're using scripture, they're using discernment and wisdom about the word of prophecy and how it might be pl- applied. In fact, one commentator provided uh, or suggested these questions are, are most likely what uh, the early church wrestled with as they were considering prophecy. Now, these questions are really taken from First Corinthians 14. And again, this implies that they were wrestling with the prophecy in, in light of scripture and in light of wisdom and how this might be applied. But notice verse 31. This is important because Paul says the purpose of the prophecy is for learning and for encouragement. Okay, we'll come back to that word learning in a moment, but that's really the aim of prophecy. And of course, the prophets need to be submissive to other prophets. Why? It's because of verse 33 which leads to our fourth and last worship guideline that Paul provides. So far he's talked about edification, tongues, prophecy. Now he's talking about order and peace. Look at verse 33 with me. Paul says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Okay, this principle should guide how we use our spiritual gifts and really how we worship together. And yet the Corinthians were doing the opposite. The Corinthians were elevating themselves above one another. They were prioritizing personal gratification, individual edification above building others up, and it was leading to relational strife and a lack of peace. In fact, James 3, I think, provides a really good description of perhaps what was going on at the church in Corinth. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder— And every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So in Corinth, they were not experiencing the peace of God, both in how they worshiped and in their relationships. And so I think verse 33 is really important for us because Paul is stressing the need for our worship gatherings to reflect the character of God. In other words, because God is a God of peace and order, therefore the way that we worship should be orderly and peaceful, okay? So when you think about us gathering together, like what's the aim, what's what's the target? What, What are we trying to do in this room together? Well, part of the aim is to put on display who God is, that we're trying to to mirror and, and reflect all that he is. Paul just lists two examples here of order and peace. There are many other attributes of God, characteristics of God, that the people of God are called to reflect in the way that we gather together so that the reality of verse 25 can actually be experienced so that people in this room can conclude that God is truly among you, that this, this is a bunch of people gathered together, not playing a religious game, not just doing something to check it off the to-do list for the week, but these are, this is a group of people who are gathered together and the living God is in their midst, that God can be experienced, God is at work, God is on the move. And that happens when you and I mirror who God is in the way that we worship. And so that's why there there should be a level of sacredness when we think about gathering together, not being overly somber or, or depressed or sad, but understand the weight of what we are doing. This gathering is unlike any other gathering throughout the rest of the week. And so the question that, that you and I should be asking ourselves right now is, does the way that I participate in the gathering of God's people during worship, does it reflect who God is or does it reflect something else? Your participation, it's reflecting something. It's like a mirror. Is it reflecting God or is it reflecting something else? Is it reflecting the culture around us? Remember, culture wants to kind of train you to be this consumer. Are you here just just consuming this consumeristic mindset? Are, Are you reflecting your feelings when you gather here? Like your engagement is dependent on how you feel. If you don't feel like worshiping, then you're just not gonna worship. If you're not in the mood, then you're gonna have a lack of engagement. Does your engagement reflect maybe the, the circumstances in your life right now. Maybe you're going through a trial, a time of suffering. The temptation is just to look down at that suffering instead of looking up at God and reflecting all that he is. What does your worship reflect? Or maybe to think about it this way. Um, Just imagine for a moment if Pennington Park Church consisted of 700 duplications of you and no one else would you conclude if that were true would you conclude that Pennington Park Church is a healthy church that that it's reflecting who god is that that it's mature or would you conclude that that church is actually unhealthy would you conclude yeah that church doesn't really like to sing a lot that that, that church is really unfriendly. They don't really talk to anybody else. That church doesn't serve. They don't use their gifts. They just kind of come in and leave and they go on with their week. If Pennington Park Church only consisted of you, what kind of church would Pennington Pennington Park Church actually be? See, this is a calling here. When we think about who God is, we reflect him in our gatherings will be filled with not just order and peace, but think about God. God is a God of joy, love, generosity, patience, kindness, and so I mean, the list goes on as far as our target when we interact with each other, when we sing, when we engage with the sermon, we financially give, when we serve throughout the church, when we fellowship together with one another. Secondly here, the other thing I want us to see as we move on to, verses 34 and 35, is a principle for women. I'm sure when I read this passage a minute ago, you probably thought, man, is Paul getting a little sidetracked here? Is he moving on to a different topic here? What does the role of women have to do with the worship uh, gathering of God's people? And honestly, at first glance, uh, these verses are problematic. (laughs) Like if you've been in tune with scripture and you, you know what has been said so far, you probably have noticed maybe some inconsistencies on the surface. For example, it seems as though this command for women to be silent in the church goes against Paul's counsel in chapter 11, specifically verse five, where women are praying, women are prophesying. And so it's like, did you just forget what you just said, Paul, in chapter 11? Or are you now contradicting this? That's an issue we need to solve. Another issue is what does it mean for women to be silent in the church? Is this all women? Is this just married women? Is this just the the loud, disruptive women who perhaps was causing disorder in the church? And what does it mean to be silent? Do they need to be silent during the entirety of the worship service or just to be silent uh, as it relates to something in particular? And what does shame have to do with all of this from verse 35? A lot of issues, a lot of questions to wrestle with, but I think a closer look here will reveal that this isn't just a random insertion on gender rules, but this actually fits the context of what Paul has been talking about. Context is very important as we understand these two verses, so let's not forget the verses that came right before them. When Paul was talking about tongues and prophecy, Paul supplied two specific scenarios for when individuals should be silent verse 28, and verse 30. Here, though, in verse 34, it looks as if the time to be silent is if you're a woman. Now, if we're reading Scripture through Scripture, which is a hermeneutical principle we all need to adopt, that simply cannot be the case. Because of chapter 11, verse 5, Paul assumes that women are prophesying and praying, and he doesn't correct them. So this cannot mean all women. This cannot mean during the entirety of the worship service. So the question is, why and when should women keep silent? I think verse 35 holds the key to understanding what Paul is talking about. If we are playing the role of detectives right now, there are three clues in verse 35 that's going to shine a light on the meaning here. The first clue happens in the first phrase here where Paul says, if there's anything they desire to learn, Okay, stop there for a moment. This is important because Paul isn't referring, when he's saying women need to be silent, he's not referring to the positive contribution that women made in the corporate gathering, but rather he is referring to their response to what is being contributed. In other words, the problem appears to be in the way that they were responding to what was being taught or what was being said And I'm emphasizing that word learn because where do you see that word show up in the context? You see that word in verse 31. Prophecy is for learning. Now in verse 34, 35, you have women who desire to learn. It appears as if Paul is linking the the way that this church prophesied and the way that they weighed what was being prophesied With women desiring to learn in perhaps a way that was causing disorder in the church. Okay, more on that in a moment. The second clue, still detectives, right? Second clue is the second half of verse 35. Paul says, For the wife who desires to learn to ask their husbands at home. Again, this is not for all women, but it appears that this is being applied to wives who were maybe interacting with their husbands in public worship in a way that was causing disorder, all right? Here's the third clue, Uh, verse 35, the word shameful. Okay, apparently the way that some wives were speaking in church was bringing shame upon their husbands. Now, shame pertains to what society views as inappropriate behavior and is relative to a given culture. We saw that with head coverings and how that brought shame from chapter 11, all right? Now, these are three helpful clues that I think point us in the direction of what was most likely taking place in Corinth, one in which the wives were interacting with their husbands in response to something during the public worship in a way that brought shame upon their husbands, okay? Now, that's general, Let's maybe get a little bit more specific here. And this is gonna be my, kind of my understanding of what's going on here based on what we know here. In fact, based on what we know about first century gender roles and based on what we know in the immediate context here, I think most likely what was going on was that wives were participating in the evaluation of prophecy, the weighing of prophecy, the discussion of discerning those in such a way that disregarded their submissive role to their husbands, okay? And and we don't know exactly what was going on here. Perhaps some of the wives were contradicting their their husbands in front of the whole church in a way that compromised the husband's authority, maybe undermined the good order of the household. Again, we don't know specifically what's going on here. And I do wanna emphasize that the issue Paul is addressing is not the whole public ministry of women in the corporate gathering of the saints. He wants women to participate, okay? Outside of preaching, outside of being an elder. Again, the issue I think is the manner in which the wives were conducting themselves in public worship towards their husbands, I think specifically in the realm of prophecy. All right, now it's also worth noting the distinction between the home and church. For us, that distinction's very clear. Like we literally have a building that we worship in. But in first century, not so much. Uh, in this context, just take the, the Jewish synagogue, for example. In the Jewish synagogue, as the Jews were worshiping, you had men on one side, women on the other, and women were unable to participate or speak. Okay, you take that, and now you've got, in the Christian worship setting, they are now worshiping in a home where men and women are intermingled with one another, and you have women who are participating, women who are speaking, women who are using their gifts in that type of setting. And so it's not hard for us to assume that women probably felt more comfortable in this home setting, and were probably more expressive, okay? Now, we can imagine the type of situation unfolding in Corinth, something that if you're married, you probably have experienced something like this in your own marriage, where in the privacy of your own home, in the privacy of your own marriage, the husband and the wife are talking about spiritual things. And if you have a marriage like me, there might be a good back and forth that happens. There might be some good questions and some just wrestling with what does this really understand and some pushback and pushback on the other side. And in the context there, that's really healthy in an average marriage, The husband is not going to feel like like the wife is undermining the husband's authority and leadership. But if you take that same type of, uh, of interaction, now in a public setting, now in front of the whole church, that might undermine the husband's authority and leadership and perhaps bring shame upon the husband. I think that's most likely what is happening here in Corinth in the context of prophecy and it was creating a level of disorder. Therefore, in this specific church setting, Paul is saying to wives to be silent, literally to hold one's tongue during the, the prophecy or during the weighing of prophecy so that there can be order within the church. Okay, that's my best stab at some of the hardest verses in 1 Corinthians. All right, let's close now with the third, um, the third principle I want us to see here in verses 36 and 40. This is now a strong warning that Paul provides in finally landing the plane of his argument that started in chapter 12. And what we're gonna see in these verses is that Paul's very tone begins to shift. Paul has been relatively nice in his rebuttal up until this point, but starting in verse 36, he's gonna be confrontational. He's going to be sarcastic. He is going to be Direct, And it starts with these two rhetorical biting questions in verse 36. He says, Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Paul's point here is that since the gospel of Jesus Christ did not originate with the Corinthians, and since it did not come to them alone, why in the world are you Corinthians acting as if you're the most important Christians in the universe, Why are you doing whatever you want to do? Paul is is pushing them, exhorting them to conform their public worship and the use of their spiritual gifts to the character of God and to how the rest of the churches of Jesus Christ uh, were operating. And then in verse 37 and 38, we see a, a short but not necessarily sweet warning that drives home his point. Paul says, that the things I'm writing to you about are from the Lord Jesus. And if you are truly spiritual, if you are truly mature, if you truly have the spirit of God within you, you will recognize that and you will submit to them. But if you do not, notice the, the warning in verse 38, if you do not recognize these things and obey them and submit to these instructions, you will not be recognized, meaning, you will not be acknowledged. You will not be regarded. Now, there are two options to what Paul is specifically referring to. Paul could be talking about that the one who is creating disorder, the one who's creating division, the one who is not using their gifts to edify others, but is being self-focused, that person will not be acknowledged in the gathering of God's people. It could be that. It could also be that from God's viewpoint, they will not be acknowledged as a true follower of Jesus. Now, nonetheless, either option there, both are are very strong warnings to the person who's creating division and stirring up disorder and not abiding by these instructions that the apostle Paul from the Lord Jesus himself is giving this church to make sure that as they gather together, things are in order. And then, of course, Paul encourages the pursuit of prophecy, does not forbid speaking in tongues as long as they're an interpreter and they follow those principles. And then you get to verse 40. And again, Paul says, but all things should be done decently and in order. Again, this is tied to the character of God from verse 33. When we worship, we are to reflect who God is. Now, as I close I shared in the beginning of this message, I gave you two specific examples of disorder that I experienced when Lindsay left on her girls' trip. Remember that the messy house and the kids were in disarray. But if I was fully transparent with you this morning, there was another kind of disorder that I experienced and it happened almost immediately when Lindsay left. It wasn't an external disorder of a messy house and unruly kids. It happened internally internally. It happened like inside my own heart where I thought to myself, do I really have this? (laughs) Can I actually pull this off and and keep everybody alive and preach on Sunday, make sure everybody gets to school? And there's a level of disorder that maybe chaos internally that I felt as far as can I really do this over the next five days. There was external and internal. And I share that with you because I think as the Apostle Paul is, is giving this exhortation to reflect all that God is related to order, related to peace, the Apostle Paul is not just exhorting them for an external uh, type of order related to how they gather for worship. Of course, he wants the things to be uh, organized and structured when they worshiped. But I think that the Apostle Paul wanted the Corinthians to address the internal disorder that was taking place deep within their hearts. For them not to just be focused on the external, but to be focused on what was happening in here. So church, let's not not assume that this passage is about behavior modification. Let's not assume that Paul is only talking about external modification or change. No, Paul wants them to address their inner lives, the motivation deep within their hearts, because God is a God of peace and order and not confusion. And they are to reflect that inside and out. Verse 40 says, all things should be done decently and and in order. But what we know is that our doing flows from our being. Our outer lives spring forth from our inner lives. So look, don't make the mistake of having the main takeaway, making sure that the outward of your life needs to be in order without addressing the inner life and what's going on deep within inside your own heart. See, let me make this a little bit more practical. I wonder if you've ever experienced a season of your life where Everything on the outside was in order. Maybe this is a rare season for you, but everything looked as if you had it all together. Your ducks were all lined up in a row, T's were crossed, I's were dotted, and yet, if you were transparent, you would say, inwardly, you were a mess, that perhaps inwardly, your, your soul felt thinned out. And maybe your your heart was in a a constant state of flux and hurry and stress. And maybe the house was clean. Maybe the, the kids were behaving nicely. Maybe things at work were fine. But perhaps your heart was far from the peace of God that surpasses all understanding that guards our hearts and our minds. And maybe externally, you're smiling. Externally, you're saying to other people, I'm doing fine, I'm doing great. But internally, your soul just can't catch up. Look, if you've been through that kind of season, maybe you're in that season right now. The temptation that we have, not only as just being basic humans, but I think living in Hamilton County, the temptation is to only address things that are going on the external of our lives, the things that people see while neglecting the state of our own souls. And you might be pushing back right now. You might be saying, well, pastor, I'm at church on Sunday. Of course I'm addressing the state of my own soul. Well, that's great. I'm glad that you're here, but it's deeper than that. In fact, let me ask you, let me ask you a couple of diagnostic questions just to see what's going on internally first question I'd ask you if we were just sitting down having coffee is, when was the last time you asked and answered the question, how is my heart doing right now in this season? Not your to-do list, not how the kids are doing, or how's work, or whatever, but how is your heart doing? I wonder when was the last time you asked that. I wonder if you even know how to answer that question, or if it's been so long Since you've been able to ask that question, you don't even know how your heart is doing. Or secondly, when was the last time that you specifically chose to develop your inward life with God over something external in your life? When was the last time you made that decision? Or thirdly, do you experience the peace of God consistently in your life? Or would you say that you actually experience hurry? you experience the sense of being stretched and stressed more consistently. See, the challenge I think that the Apostle Paul is giving us as we think about who God is, that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God is not a God of disorder, but of order. I think that relates to every aspect of our lives, but especially what's going on underneath the surface, the areas of our lives that no one's gonna poke at that you might put up a front, you might put up this this image that you want everybody else to see. The question is, is what about the areas of your life that no one sees? I wanna remind you that Jesus' harshest judgments towards those who were religious addressed this very issue. Matthew chapter 23 He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. On the outside, you're crystal clean. I'm doing great. I'm smiling. I got all my ducks lined up in a row, but inwardly, things are in disarray. Things are in disorder. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He said that this generation has forgotten that the gospel message does not clean up and shine the outside of a person. Rather, it bores into the very heart and soul of a person and radically changes that person from the inside forever. And the question obviously is how? How do we experience that inner transformation, that, that renovation of the heart? Well, the answer is found in the gospel. I'm not gonna give you the, these to-do lists to have your, your behavior modified. The answer is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ because the way that we come to Jesus is the same way that we walk with Jesus. Think about the way that you came to Jesus. Did you come to Jesus by faith, by hiding the messiness of your lives? Did you come to Jesus by hiding your sin, hiding your struggles, hiding the disorder that was happening in your life? No, you exposed that before the Lord Jesus, because why? Because Jesus went to the cross to pay for your sin. Jesus went to the cross to pay for the messiness of your life. Jesus died so that you could be saved, so that you could be forgiven, so that you could spend eternity forever and ever with him, but also... Jesus died to put into order every aspect of your life for you to experience the peace of God that surpasses all understanding that can guard your heart and your mind. And so look, are you here today? And you'd say, yeah, on the outside, I look okay, but inwardly, I am a mess. I I am filled with every kind of disorder. I cannot keep it together. Look, my encouragement to you, is to prioritize sitting at the feet of Jesus. Unhurried, sitting there and interacting with Jesus the same way that you first came to Jesus by faith when you were saved. You bring before him your mess, bring before him your neediness. Don't bring before him the way that you're performing for him. Bring before him your need of his grace and sit at the feet of Jesus with a posture of receiving all that he has for you and worship him. Repent, worship, pray, dive into the scriptures and try to fill your heart up with the fullness of God that is found in Jesus alone. Look, if you have to pick one, choose spending time with the Lord and clean up the messy toys in the living room later. If you have to choose one, choose spending time with Jesus and work out later. If you have to choose one, spend time with Jesus in an unhurried way and get off social media. Turn off the TV. Set your alarm clock a little bit earlier and prioritize spending time with Jesus and sitting under the water flow of his grace. I don't think you want us to track how much time you spend on social media and how very little time you spend with Jesus. And I wonder if the disorder that you feel internally is because you're neglecting the very one who wants to bring you peace. Jesus wants to put messiness of your heart and your life in order and fill you with peace. And he says, come, come all who are weary, come all who are heavy laden, don't hide your mess, bring it with you, and he will give you rest. Let's pray together. God, we thank you and praise you, Lord, that you do invite us each and every day to come to you, all that we are. God, thank you that we do not have to pretend to be someone that we're not, Thank you that we don't have to hide our stuff and our baggage, but you already know it. And we can bring it before you knowing that there's grace, knowing that there is acceptance because of Jesus. And God, I pray that you would give us the courage to invite you into those deep places of our hearts where we don't really want you to go. We don't want anybody to go. And yet, God, we need you to come and invade and do a renovation of our hearts. God, help us to avoid the temptation of looking fine on the outside and neglecting our inward life. But Lord, our very doing flows from our being. God, help us to prioritize time with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.